2: We're joined this portion of our program by um, a guest who I've had the pleasure of speaking with before, a lively discussion we had with him at that time. We were talking about a book that he had put together entitled Satchel. Um, Now he is out with a book entitled Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Larry Tai is joining us on our program. He's been an award-winning journalist at the Boston Globe and a Nieman Fellow at Harvard University. He now runs a Boston-based training program for medical journalists. Uh, He is the author, as I mentioned, of the New York Times bestseller, Satchel, as well as Superman, The Father of Spin, Homelands, and Rising from the Rails, co-author with Kitty Dukakis of Shock. He joins us by phone on our program. Larry, it's nice to talk with you again. Good morning.
1: Great to be on with you.
2: Um, I say that name, Bobby Kennedy. What's the first thing that comes to your mind?
1: Liberal icon, a guy who even half a century after his tragic death, the Kennedy name itself and especially Bobby's name became a cliche for the great liberal pantheon in American history. And yet that is only half the story of who he was and maybe not the most interesting half.
2: What intrigued you and prompted you? to do this book, to do this story?
1: Two things. One is having grown up in Massachusetts, infused with everything Kennedy, I was totally taken by the family generally and by the member of that family who I think is the least understood, the most provocative, and possibly the most interesting, who is Bobby. But if that was half of it, the other half was having had a sense that there was an untold story about him, that in fact, rather than starting out as the liberal icon he became at the end, he started out as his father's son and as a cold warrior, communist-fearing conservative. And that made where he ended up to me even more interesting.
2: Well, is it your belief then that we kind of have to rethink our image of him?
1: Absolutely have to rethink our image of him. And anytime you're writing a biography about anybody, you're using their relatively small life story as a lens into bigger and more compelling issues. And I think we have to rethink who Bobby Kennedy was, but we also can see him as a lens into how America itself was changing from the conservative era of Eisenhower in the 1950s to... The era of tumult and change in the 1960s, and Bobby was partly a reflection of that change, and he was partly a cutting-edge leader in trying to steer that change.
2: What would you say if somebody said, well, if we were looking at this in today's lexicon, he could be referred to as a flip-flopper because of the change?
1: So I think that that's a serious concern. And I think that in today's lexicon, we tend to be cynical about politicians and think that if they change, it's because that's where the political winds are blowing. Bobby's change in the research that I did on him seems much more heartfelt and seems to defy this whole notion of flip-flopping. And it also defies the notion that he was going with the political winds, because many of his changes were going in exactly the opposite direction. At a time when Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan in the 1960s were reacting to all the change going on in America by trying to take us in a more conservative direction and did take us there. Bobby Kennedy was defying those trends and trying to steer the change using his conservative roots, but also his liberal, um, new liberal reflections. And he was, I think, on the verge of becoming the tough liberal or the tender conservative that many people have spent the last 50 years pining for.
2: Was he a harbinger of the change that was happening? He
1: was. He was a harbinger of it, and had he lived... So we can go through a million what-ifs when somebody dies tragically like Bobby Kennedy did. But he died on the cusp of his biggest political victory, which was in the California presidential primary. The next day, he was planning to go to Chicago where Mayor Richard Daly's son tells me that his father was planning to endorse Bobby. And I think the party establishment would have rallied around him. And I think that if anybody in America knew Richard Nixon's vulnerabilities, it was the guy, Bobby Kennedy, who had beat Nixon when he was running his brother Jack's campaign eight years before. So, again, we can all speculate, but my what-if would have us believe that Bobby Kennedy would have been president and would have taken America in a very different direction. And in terms of what's going on in America today, with the extraordinary racial strife that we're seeing in the, last, um, in the recent past in everywhere from Baton Rouge and St. Paul to Dallas, I think Bobby would have addressed some of those issues 50 years ago in a way that might have made them less of a recurring theme 50 years later today.
2: The fact that so many of us grew up in an era where America was basically obsessed with the Kennedys, and some might even argue still is today, is that a difficult thing for those who are younger than us to comprehend?
1: It's difficult because... Those who are younger than us often don't know much about that history. They don't understand the fascination with the Kennedys, and they don't understand the extraordinary hope. So we don't have much today um, in the way of hope from our political world. Uh, Today's candidates running for president start out with unfavorability ratings that are unprecedented. And it's tough to imagine back to a time when leaders, and when incredibly young leaders, Bobby Kennedy, when he died, was just 42 years old. And the idea that there was a generation coming along that was offering this kind of promise from the part of the political establishment is tough to conceive of, and yet I think it's really important, especially today, and especially when somebody like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama would say that Bobby Kennedy was the closest thing to political mentors that they had, um, I think it's really important to understand what he represented and how parts of his message continue to resonate.
2: Where were you when he was killed?
1: I was 13 years old. I was probably on my way to school, and I was devastated. It was within a period from 1963 to 1968, we had lost our three most promising leaders, Jack Kennedy, his brother Bobby, and in between Martin Luther King. And there was, if you can remember back to that, this sense that we had been robbed of the sense of hope. It was bad enough to lose Jack, but we had Martin Luther King and Bobby. And then when King went, even the the most prominent civil rights leaders in America were saying, thank God we at least have Bobby left. And he was, in 1968, trying to put together a coalition that was unprecedented of blacks, Hispanics, blue-collar whites that we would later call Reagan Democrats, Native Americans, the dispossessed, the young and old, the poor and even the rich, in a way that we've sort of given up bringing them together. We presume today that America is a land equally divided, and the only question is who's going to get that 1% or 2% to shift it one way or the other. And back then there was a sense that maybe we could bring people together around common purposes.
2: Bobby Kennedy's widow, Ethel, consented to talk to you. Um, What was that like?
1: So I would like to tell you, first of all, in, in 50 years since her husband died, she hasn't talked publicly about him. And I would like to tell you that it's because I'm charming and convincing, and I sort of wooed her into talking to me. I think what happened with her and with lots of the people who I talked to, and I talked to about 400 people, I, would, I think that what was going on is that those people were sensing their own mortality. A, Ethel just turned 88 and I think she decided it was me or nobody. And what it was like was, to me, it opened up an entire new set of possibilities in understanding Bobby. It was less that she was loquacious and eloquent than that she let me test every theory I had about her husband and nobody knew him better personally and in terms of his public life than Ethel. So just one example, if I can take a second, in terms of something that Ethel helped me understand. Bobby Kennedy's first real job after he graduated from law school was working for seven and a half months for Senator Joe McCarthy, the famous red-baiting, table-thumping senator from Wisconsin. And lots of people who were part of the sort of Kennedy myth-making machine have tried to write that off as an asterisk, saying that that was an aberration, it was short, it didn't mean anything. And that will help me understand that Bobby and Joe McCarthy were buddies, that he was, that McCarthy, when he got away from his table-thumping Senate hearing room, could be a very charming guy. And Bobby Kennedy went to work for him and saw him during that time as his mentor. Bobby was an anti-communist. He saw McCarthy as the one guy in America, who was standing up effectively against the communists, he failed to see in those early years something he saw clearly in his later years, which was all of McCarthy's victims, that he went much too far. And when you look back at that McCarthy era, the best hearings that McCarthy ever held, the ones that were least um, rabble-rousing, were the hearings that Bobby Kennedy held on why our allies, while we were at war against the communists in Korea, why our allies were trading with the communists and even shipping their troops around. So Bobby Kennedy was a McCarthyite, but he was the best of them. And Ethel helped me see that and lots of other things that people have denied or tried to obfuscate about her husband.
2: The guest who has joined us on our program uh, this Sunday morning, the first hour of our program, is Larry Tai. Larry is a veteran reporter with the Boston Globe, worked there for many years. He is joining us, talking with us about um, the book, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. We talked with him when the book came out in hardcover. It's actually coming out in paperback uh, this week. And uh, Larry is joining us in this hour of our program to share some thoughts about Bobby Kennedy and his legacy. And also, in a way, kind of relating some of Bobby Kennedy's legacy to events of today. We'll continue in this discussion. He's with us for our entire hour this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Thanks so much for joining us on our program here in our 6 o'clock hour. We move into... um, second portion of our chat with Larry Tai. Uh, Larry is somebody who's been a veteran journalist. who's a reporter for a long time with Boston Globe. Uh, He has authored a book entitled Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. We talked with him when the book came out in hardcover. It's now coming out in paperback uh, this week. And, you know, one of the things that when we talk about Bobby Kennedy and his legacy, literally we have to also touch upon the battles, Larry, that he had with the Teamsters Union?
1: So probably one of the defining battles in America of the 1950s was the big government versus the allegedly corrupt big union battle. And nobody personified that like Bobby Kennedy and his arch enemy, Jimmy Hoffa, the president of the Teamsters. And that was a battle. If you were Hoffa, you would say that was a battle of the government trying to control the unions trying to undermine the unions on behalf of big business. If you were Bobby Kennedy, it was a battle to try to save unions by getting rid of allegedly corrupt leaders like Jimmy Hoffa. And these were two of the most tenacious people ever in the Washington scene, young Senate staffer Bobby Kennedy, who was feeling the height of his power in terms of being able to go after guys like Hoffa, and Jimmy Hoffa, who was running the biggest most powerful union in America that could literally stop America in its tracks. They controlled trucking, they controlled the commerce of America, and these two guys went head-to-head, and initially it looked like Hoffa had won, and in the end Jimmy Hoffa went to jail when Bobby Kennedy became attorney general.
2: Now, the relationship between Bobby Kennedy and Jack Kennedy, President Kennedy, our 35th president. What was that like, really?
1: So there is today a cliché where people talk about um, when when they're forming a presidential ticket, they talk about the idea of a co-presidency, of having a vice president or somebody else in the senior administration who is so powerful and so important to the president that they become almost like a co-president. The closest thing America ever saw to a true co-presidency was when Jack and Bobby Kennedy were serving together. Bobby was Jack's attorney general, but at different times in that administration, he was the pseudo-CIA director. He had more influence at times on things like how to respond to the Cuban Missile Crisis than the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State did. He was his brother's lieutenant, he was his consigliere, he was his alter ego they would, as Ethel described it to me, they would not just finish one another's sentences, but at times they didn't even have to say anything, because they instinctively, by body language and just by knowing one another, they knew what the other one was about to say. And while Jack was a very strong guy and Bobby was clearly his younger brother, during the critical moments, whether it was civil rights or Cuba or how to deal with the Russians, during the critical moments when Jack needed somebody who he knew had only his best interests at heart, politically and personally, it was Bobby he always turned to. And that was a really extraordinary moment. And it was generally for Bobby an incredibly positive thing until that day in November 1963, where in one one motion with a crazy assassin, Bobby lost his best friend, his boss, and his sense of purpose in the world when Jack was killed.
2: And realistically, how did that change him?
1: It changed him the first month after the assassination. Bobby was the nation's Mm mourner-in-chief. He was the one who helped rally Jackie and the kids to deal with the loss of their husband-slash-father. He was the one who helped the country... With the transition to Lyndon Johnson and legitimized Lyndon Johnson, he was the one who held it together. A month into things, when the country was pulling it together and when even Jackie was, Bobby lost it. He had what we would today describe as clinical depression that lasted for months. He was was, um, unable to focus, he would go for long rides in his car in the middle of the night, he was just generally without a sense of purpose he had his whole notion of what he would do in the world his his present and his future were shattered he thought about giving it all up he thought about going and traveling across the world with his family he thought about teaching he speculated on lots of things but the truth was this is a guy who was devoted to public service and public policy and about 8 months after his brother died he ended up running for senator in new york and giving himself a new sense of purpose but he was a very different guy then he was always a balance between the tender and the tough but the tender started predominating after he felt this sense of vulnerability with jack's loss he started reading greek tragedy he started having a sense in the world that the power and the hubris of the kennedys could be shattered again by an assassin's bullet And it was a very different, and I think a better Bobby Kennedy that ultimately emerged from Jack's death.
2: And in terms of how it is that they related, did Bobby Kennedy cover up dalliances by President Kennedy?
1: He covered up lots of things by President Kennedy, and he'd been doing that for years. He covered up the fact that Jack had a very, very serious condition, um, an adrenal condition called Addison's disease. He covered up and may have even enabled, but definitely covered up um, the dalliances. He didn't want that to destroy his brother and to destroy the presidency. Um, He worked with the press as one of the most effective spendmeisters ever. I think Bobby Kennedy, in many ways, was the father of modern campaigns in the best and worst sense, the best sense in terms of doing a kind of organizing district by district that is a winning combination and that was seldom done and, in the worst sense, the kind of hardball campaigning that we now take for granted. You didn't want to mess with Bobby Kennedy. When, when Richard Nixon, the most famous political debate, televised political debate, and the first one probably in American history was Jack Kennedy against Richard Nixon. And when Nixon came by and jokingly asked Bobby how he looked before that debate, when Nixon famously looked like he had a five o'clock shadow and look miserable, Bobby said, you look great. And I don't know, I don't think I can say on the radio what he said to Jack just before he went on air, but it was, <laughs> kick him somewhere.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you talk about um, this relationship and talk about Bobby Kennedy and his passion with the civil rights movement, it wasn't always that way, was it?
1: It wasn't always that way with most issues. And let's take civil rights for a second. Bobby Kennedy started out not quite clueless, but pretty close to it. He had, his natural instinct was to be empathetic with the plight of blacks and others who were oppressed in America. But he also, as attorney general was more concerned with protecting his brother. So he suggested to the civil rights folks that they slow things down, that they not embarrass Jack when he was going to Russia to have a, um, a, a meeting with Nikita Khrushchev, that, he not embarrass, that they not embarrass the country and push too hard. He had, after all, while he depended on black support to get his brother elected, he depended also on the support of Democrats in the South who were arch-segregationists. And he wanted things to proceed in a legalistic, slow way. It was only after riots in Birmingham, in Montgomery, and most famously at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi in Oxford, that Bobby Kennedy saw that his go-slow approach and put federal troops in only after the violence had started, that that was not the way you were going to appease segregationists, that they were not going to be appeased at all, and that he had to take a tougher stand and be as hard-edged as they were. And by the end of his time as attorney general, he was one of the best friends blacks had. At the beginning, it wasn't that way. And by the time he died, I think I can say, without being contradicted, that Bobby Kennedy was the most popular white man in black America.
2: I'd be remiss also if I did not ask you about the Warren Commission investigation of President Kennedy's assassination. Did Bobby Kennedy believe there was a conspiracy?
1: So I think he believed something went on that wasn't addressed by the Warren Commission, and it was something more than what happened with Lee Harvey Oswald. He was one of the few people close to the situation, who was never interviewed by the Warren Commission because he didn't want to be, he always said publicly that he agreed with what they had concluded. And I think privately, based on things that have been written, based on people that I talked to, I think privately two things were going on. One is he realized that it would take his being president to truly open up all of these dark questions and find an answer, and that that was when he planned to do it. The other thing, I believe, is that he felt a lot of guilt. He wasn't sure whether what he did in going after Fidel Castro, in going after the mob, in going after Jimmy Hoffa, had somehow backfired and ended up in his brothers being killed. Bobby always assumed that if anybody was assassinated, it would be him, not Jack. And I think that to his last days... He had some sense of nagging guilt that he had somehow played a role in that.
2: If you were alive in 1968, odds are you remember very well some of the events that took place at that time. It was quite the year, shall we say, in terms of developments, strife, protests, a sense of division in this country. And, of course, we had the assassinations of Martin Luther King, Jr., and Bobby Kennedy, massive protest at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and, of course, the ongoing escalation of the U.S. involvement in the war in Vietnam. We're talking with Larry Tai on our program and talking with him about his book that looks at Bobby Kennedy's life. It's entitled Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. It's now out in paperback. More with Larry as we continue on our program this Sunday morning. We're talking with Larry Ty on our program and talking with him about Bobby Kennedy, the making of a liberal icon, uh, his new book. Um, he's kind enough to be joining us by phone. Bobby Kennedy's visit to a sharecropper's shack in the Mississippi Delta, what was that like?
1: So I hate to use the word epiphany, but if there were ever epiphany moments, or maybe even a better way to say it, if there were ever moments that we can look back and say that was a defining moment of who he was becoming. It was that moment at the sharecropper's shack. And let me give you a little background on that. So a bunch of senators in Washington hear testimony that there are Americans who are actually starving. And one of the places that it was said that this was going on was in Mississippi. So these senators go down to Jackson, Mississippi, and hold a great public hearing. They hear about hunger and starvation. They hear that there are people in Mississippi who actually have zero income and therefore can't even afford the nominal fee that was charged in for food stamps. And most of the senators do what senators always do. They hear that stuff. They maybe take it to heart. And then they go home to their plush life in Washington. Bobby Kennedy and one other senator decided to stick around. And Bobby said, I want you to show me what you've been telling us about. So they go to the breadbasket, one of the breadbaskets of America, the Mississippi Delta, they are shown around a bunch of shacks where poor people are living. These people, the the children's stomachs are bloated in a way that suggests malnutrition. There are 15 people living in a tiny shack, um, and they visit especially one family. And that family, Bobby thinks he's alone in this visit, thinks there are no reporters who are actually nearby in the house with him and can see what he's doing and he gets down on the floor there's a young black toddler on the floor um, just playing with his little scraps of food there cornmeal and other things on the floor and Bobby gets down on the floor um, a dirty um, uh, dirt floor with flies swarming around and he tries to make contact with this young child and he spends 15 minutes there in a scene that, to me, says who Bobby Kennedy is. There are not many people. There may be nobody else in the U.S. Senate then who would not just go visit the shack, but in his fancy suit would get down on a dirt floor and spend 15 minutes try, trying to make contact with a child it was impossible to make contact with. And if anybody were watching that, they would not have just noticed the flies swarming overhead. They would have noticed the tears coming down Bobby's face. And this is who Bobby Kennedy was. He related to kids at their eye level. He related to people in addition to sort of all of his public grandstanding stuff. He related on an incredibly human, empathetic level. And this is the guy, if Jack Kennedy was sort of Pope-like, Bobby Kennedy was a parish priest who could truly relate to people. He came away from that experience in the Mississippi Delta went back to Washington and did two things. First, the day, the Sunday afternoon, he got back. He was in his estate in suburban Washington in McLean, Virginia, and he told his kids, who were sitting in this enormous dining room with fancy chandeliers, he said, this is what's going on in Mississippi, and it's not something abstract. It is something that I want all of you in your lives, to do something to help make America a better place. And it's something I was with a couple nights ago, his eldest child, and 50 years later that message continues to resonate with his family, and they've all taken it very seriously and tried to do something. The other thing that he did is on Monday he went to visit the Secretary of Agriculture, and he got him to promise that if he could prove that there were people in America with zero income that the secretary would change the rules for food stamps and make it available to people who had nothing to give in return. Bobby proved it to the secretary. The secretary changed the rules, and people there were fewer people starving in America thanks to Bobby Kennedy's trip.
2: After Martin Luther King was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy may have given his best speech ever. I'd like your thoughts on that.
1: So what happened was... Bobby was campaigning for president in 1968 in Indiana. He arrives by plane in Indianapolis and hears that Martin Luther King has been shot and killed. And he was due that night to give a speech in the middle of the black ghetto in Indianapolis. The then mayor of Indianapolis, a guy who went on to become a U.S. senator named Richard Lugar, says, you will not go into the ghetto. It's not safe for you, and your being there could cause a riot. Bobby Kennedy says, Thanks for the advice, but I'm going. He heads into the ghetto, he tosses away the speech that his aides had written for him, and he delivers for the first time in his life an impassioned discussion of how he felt when his brother Jack was killed. He's telling many people, this nearly all black audience, he's telling many of them for the first time that Martin King has been killed, and yet his empathy for them and their empathy for him in terms of what he'd gone through with his brother created this extraordinary bond that night. And the evidence of it, you don't trust me on the fact that he made a difference. You look at the fact that more than 100 cities in America had race riots the night of Martin Luther King's death, and Indianapolis was not one of them. And I think it was because of what Bobby Kennedy did that night in appealing to people for calm and for compassion and for figuring out where we go in a reasoned way after this. And I would say just one last editorial point is we could sure use some of that sense of direction today.
2: Bobby Kennedy, the making of a liberal icon, Larry Ty, the author, talking with us on our program. Larry, as always, wonderful discussion. Thank you very much. Certainly good luck with the book.
0: Thank you very much. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. (laughs) Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love for those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division, What we need in the united states is not hatred what we need in the united states is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country whether they be white or whether they be black We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With... <laughs> and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. I thank all of you who made this possible this evening, all of the effort that you made and all of the people whose names I haven't mentioned, but who made all, did all of the work at the precinct level, who got out the vote, who did all of the effort, um, brought forth all of the efforts that's required. I was a campaign manager eight years ago. I know what a difference that kind of an effort and that kind of commitment makes. So I thank all of you. Those of you are here. Oh, Mayor, Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. Oh, my so uh,
2: my
0: thanks to all of you. And now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. Thank you.
2: Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? Is that possible? Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen. It is possible. He has not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my god. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rafer Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. That's it, Rafer. Get
0: it the gun raper okay now hold on to the guy hold on to him hold on to him ladies and gentlemen hold him hold him we don't want another oswald hold him raper we don't want another
2: oswald hold him raper keep people away from him keep people away from him well whether you're joining us on sports radio 66 sports radio 1019 or the growing number of folks who are joining us via radio.com. Hopefully by now you have downloaded that app and find it to be extremely useful. This is Bob Salter. Thanks so much for joining us on our program. That year of 1968, an extremely turbulent one, and the legacy of uh, Bobby Kennedy, discussed by Larry Ty. Appropriately enough on our program, the sports edge at seven thirty this Sunday morning follows the NFL preview, which happens at seven o'clock. J.J. in the morning line at eight thirty and at nine o'clock football Sunday action. Malusis and deal here on the fan. This episode is
1: brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the name your price tool from Progressive.